Lots of statistics are indicating that young people are particularly challenged in our modern age in regards to religious faith, uh, specifically even just believing in God. Some recent statistics that we cited on the virtual Bible study suggested that as many as 80% of kids raised in various religious denominations leave that religious belief system at some point in their life, very few of them to return later on in life. Questions were asked about what's causing this, what's the, what's the contributing factor or factors that's, that are, that's causing this. Uh, young people to, who once believed in God and had some sense of religious practice, they're now abandoning that. What's the cause? Several factors were suggested, but one that was very high on the list was they become exposed, especially in their higher education, high school and college, they become exposed to more and more teaching about evolution. They believe that what they're being taught is, is plainly contradictory to what they see in the Bible. They can't seem to correlate the two together in any way at all, and so they abandon their faith because they believe that science has proved that the Bible can't be true and what it says about creation. It's a big challenge. A lot, of, a lot of young people are being challenged that way. And it's not just in religious denominations, even among some of our own brethren. We have heard of and learned of that sort of thing happening. So, with this trend, a very disturbing trend, young people losing faith and belief in God, with evolution being a top reason as to why that's happening, uh, we have chosen, and the men made a final decision in the business meeting last month, that we're going to devote this year's community Bible study to a, to a discussion of evolution versus creation. Uh, we've got the memorial building reserved for July 23rd and 24th. I hope you keep that marked on your calendar. Don't let anything get in your way. We've also lined up a speaker, Joshua Gertler, who is a who is a Ph.D. scientist and works for the Food and Drug Administration uh, in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, is going to come and conduct those lessons for us. And he, he's been, he comes to us highly recommended by people that we hold in respect. Uh, they tell us that he's going to do us an awesome job teaching us along those lines. So I think that's something for us to be looking forward to and something for us to be praying about. But I, in our lesson tonight, I thought we'd spend some time talking along those lines, and especially talking about creation and asking the question, how long ago did that happen anyway? How long ago was creation? And that's what we want to spend our time talking about tonight. We stop here for just a minute to thank you for being here on this Lord's Day evening. Uh, before services, some of us were talking again about that idea that some churches have, have, have gone to just one service on Sunday, uh, but I think we are firmly committed to two services, a Sunday night service, and I think we appreciate the opportunity to come together again on Sunday evening, and we commend you for being a part of it. So, what about creation? How long ago, how long ago did everything come into existence? We're going to call it creation. Obviously, those who don't believe in God really shy away from that word. They don't want to believe it was created. It just happened. How long did this all, how long ago did this all come into existence? This physical universe that we see and that we are a part of? Well, I think everybody knows that 
long, long periods of time are essential uh, if the theory of evolution is going to be true. Nobody believes that evolution happens fast. We understand that evolution, if it happened at all, it took a long, long time for everything to, to transpire because it moves really slow. Uh, for instance, if we ask, why can't we see evolution happening in our day and time? And, and the answer they would give is, well, it is, of course, but it, it's so slow that you can't see it over the course of one lifetime. It doesn't happen in years or hundreds of years or even thousands of years. Uh, it, it happens in hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, even billions of years. And so they, all evolutionists would argue it's a very slow process and takes lots of time. And so evolutionists have argued that the universe and Earth as a part of the universe, the universe is really very, very old. Let me show you a timeline, and you might recognize this chart. We've used it before. But if you were going to look at time from an evolutionary standpoint, the timeline would look something like this. About 20 billion years ago, there was the so-called Big Bang. Now, I want to tell you, this is a huge stretch to try and get people to believe in the Big Bang. We're supposed to believe that all the matter that comprises this vast universe that we see today, all of the matter of the universe was so tightly compressed that it may be was compressed into something about the size of a head of a pin. Recently I heard someone say, ah, maybe it wasn't the head of a pin, maybe it was about the size of a tennis ball. I, I, don't, I, I don't care, it's, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But it got so tightly compressed and compacted that finally there was this enormous explosion, uh, just beyond comprehension, explosion just unimaginable in its intensity. And everything began to hurtle out from the center of the Big Bang explosion. I'll tell you, things were moving really fast, and they were super, super hot. And it took a long time for things to slow down and cool off enough that things could begin to solidify. And so the Big Bang happened about 20 billion years ago, uh, these evolutionary scientists would tell us. And it was about 5 billion years ago when planet Earth and our solar system formed. It took 15 billion years for things to slow down and cool off enough to solidify into something that we now know as our solar system, with the sun and the planets and planet Earth being one of them. But nothing was living here. It was still an, uh, an uninhabited place, very, very uh, violent and rough in its, in its makeup and its composition. And again, there are a lot of changes that needed to take place. But about two billion years ago, there was what they call the spontaneous generation of life. Now this again is a huge stretch to try and imagine this to be so. But we're supposed to believe that all of the necessary components of life came together. Somehow a spark of energy acted upon a bit of matter and the first living cell came into existence. Uh, we are called upon to believe that, that life sprang from non-living matter. Now scientists have never, ever even come close to duplicating that in the very best controlled laboratory conditions. They can't make that happen. But they tell us they believe certainly that it did happen, and we're supposed to believe that it happened, although they can't reproduce it. And then much later, so the, uh, about two billion years ago, this first single living cell 
was generated spontaneously from non-living matter. And then the evolutionary process began. And over eons and eons, two billion years of time, eventually all the varied life forms that we see on planet Earth all evolved from that single original source. Again, it took a long, long time to happen. Uh, and things evolved very slowly. But it was way later that man evolved. And the, and the estimates now are somewhere between three and a half to four million years ago, man, as we now know him, our, our very earliest ancestors evolved into a form that we would call human. And so about three and a half to four million years ago, uh, man evolved. George Simpson, a Harvard professor, said, man is something of a newcomer, a Johnny-come-lately in comparison to other life forms and especially compared to the, to the history or the age of the earth. And so this Harvard professor admits that you look at that time scale, man is way down here on the end of this time scale. There, in, in, in the 20 billion year history of the universe, man just showed up just recently. It's like current events. The evolution of man is current events on the evolutionary time scale. Now, that, that maybe doesn't, that, that timeline maybe doesn't convey it, uh, as, as, you know, we'll really get a sense of it. But somebody put it this way. On that timeline, if you imagine that line is a hundred feet long, so you draw this line, and it's a hundred feet long. That's a hundred feet. Man's part on that timeline is one inch down here at the end. And maybe that gives you some sense of how they believe that a lot of things happened, and we just showed up here very recently. Now, all of that, of course, is contrary to the biblical timetable. If we study our Bibles and we put together the ages and dates that we're able to calculate from the various genealogies in the book of Genesis and so forth, we're not trying to hold anybody to exact dates here, but you, you can't come up with too much variance. Adam was created about 4,000 years before Christ. Abraham was about 2,000 years before Christ. Moses probably about 1,500 years before Christ. King David reigned 1,000 years before Christ. Then, of course, when Jesus came is where we have the break between B.C. and A.D. And here we are about 2,000 years after Christ. So what does that add up to? 4,000 years before Christ, 2,000 years since Christ. The biblical timeline is talking in thousands, about 6,000, in fact, years old for planet Earth. Now, some of you go, well, there's, you could, those genealogies maybe didn't cover everybody. Uh, and so they think, well, you can squeeze in a few more years. I'll tell you, you can't squeeze hard enough to get more than 10,000 years. That's a very stre uh, extreme stretch of things. You can't get more than 10,000 years. I think that on the order of 6,000 years is probably closer to what the Bible teaches. But anyway, you go about that, the biblical timeline is an incredibly different scale than the evolutionary timetable. Wouldn't you agree? There's no, and there's just no correlation there. You just can't fit those two together, right? They're so different. Well, one is talking thousands, the other is talking billions of years. 
There's no way that you can harmonize those things. But unfortunately, because the claims of science have been so strong, some folks have tried to find those vast periods of time in the Bible. Figure out somehow where we can get millions and billions of years. While the Bible seems to be just talking in thousands, how could we get those millions and billions so that somehow we can force a, a correlation between what the Bible says and what science claims? One fellow who is associated with Christian or uh, Churches of Christ, rather, you may have heard of him. John Clayton is his name. He's up in South Bend, Indiana, I think. He puts out a, a regular publication and has for years, and he goes around lecturing, and he... He was once an atheist. He's come to believe in God. But he's, he tries to harmonize the Scripture with these unfounded scientific claims of an ancient universe. Here's a quote from John Clayton. He said, Man is a very recent newcomer to this planet. Man's history is but a tiny fraction of Earth's history. And so here's a Christian who, who's trying to say, Well, I'm agreeing with the scientist on the age of the Earth. We think he's wrong. We're going to try to show quickly why we think that that is wrong. A popular method, a popular method for trying to get those long ages, get them in the Bible somewhere, and a very popular way that that's done is to go to Genesis 1 and say that the days, you know, there were six creation days and God rested on the seventh day, that those creation days in Genesis 1 were actually long, long periods of time eons of time, millions of years, maybe billions of years long, that every day there, the, the idea of days is used figuratively in Genesis 1. And this has been called the day-age theory, that every day of Genesis was actually a long age of time, eons of time. It's wrong, it's error, it's an unnecessary compromise and let's talk just briefly about why we think that is so. If we go to Genesis 1, I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis 1. And let's just look real quickly there. We'll, we'll be reminded of some arguments that we've made in the past and others have certainly made in the past that show that even within Genesis 1, you, there's just really no way to interpret Genesis 1 other than that they were literal, consecutive, 24-hour days. Now, listen to that again. They were literal consecutive 24-hour days. I think that's really important, and I think as we read Genesis 1, we see that it is so. First of all, uh, there's just a, a basic premise of biblical interpretation that says that words should be understood in their literal sense unless there's some compelling reason to, to, to give them a figurative meaning. And that's the basic rule. And that's what you do. In other words, you don't... You don't assume a figurative... I mean, the Bible has figurative language. We all agree to that. There's, there's no doubt about that, right? But you don't assume a figurative meaning to a passage unless there's some reason to assume that it's talking figuratively. Uh, again, that's just a basic rule of Bible interpretation. And there's nothing in Genesis 1 to suggest that it's being a figurative description. Uh, in fact, if Moses wanted to describe long ages of time, there were words that he could use. The word that he used was the word, Hebrew word yom in Genesis 1. Uh, if he wanted to talk about long periods of time, he could have used the Hebrew word olam 
or door, those are words in Hebrew that suggest long, indefinite periods of time. He didn't use those words. Or he could have added a, a suffix to the word. He used the word yom, and he could have added a suffix yom rob. And yom, yom, yom rob is a Hebrew expression that means long days. He didn't do any of that. He just used the word for day, and there's no reason to think that it was used figuratively here in Genesis 1. In fact, the meaning of a day is defined in the text. Look at Genesis 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Right there's your definition. How is he using the word day? A period of light followed by a period of darkness was a day. What do you think a day is? Well, that's what I think a day is too, don't you? A period of light followed by a period of darkness is a day. Um, now, unless we're going to believe that there were long, long, long periods of light followed by long, long, long periods of darkness, then you've got your definition right there. We really shouldn't even have to go any further than that. And of course, long periods of light followed by long periods of darkness won't fit either, right? It, that wouldn't be used, and we'll describe that here in a minute. There's a specific construction of words in Genesis 1 when it speaks of the first day and the second day and so forth. You read that in verse 5, for instance. You read that in verse 8, verse 13. First day, second day, third day, and so on. That construction is found more than a hundred times. We're talking about the construction of the Hebrew words, the grammar of the Hebrew. That construction is found more than a hundred times in the Old Testament. And it's always literal. It's never, emphatically never, that construction is never found in a figurative use. There's no exception. And if this is an exception, it's a lone exception. That construction of words always means a 24-hour day. But again, even within Genesis 1, think of how the long age theory wouldn't work. Uh, if the... Uh, if the days were real long and the nights were real long, there was just a period of light followed by a period of darkness. But they were real long periods of light followed by a period of darkness. How would plants survive following uh, if, if light, long periods of light followed long periods of darkness? How would they survive? Uh, in verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so... And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the third day. So plant life was created on the third day. Well, we, we still got days four, five, and six to go, right? And if we're supposed to believe those were long periods of light followed by long periods of darkness, how could that be so? And we, we're talking about periods of light that would have had to have been millions or billions of years long, followed by periods of darkness that would have had to be millions or billions of years long. You know what would happen if, if our earth stopped rotating or rotated so slowly that our day was any, even sig any significantly longer than it is? You know what would happen? What if our day, what, what, if, what if the rotation, what about, what if one rotation of the earth, instead of taking 24 hours, what if it took 48 hours. And so your days were twice as long. 
I'm telling you, what, we'd burn up. And then your nights were twice as long. We're going to freeze up. We're going to burn up and then freeze up. We're not, uh, life as we know it couldn't be maintained on planet Earth if the days were even twice as long as they are now, let alone millions or billions of years long. And then the question has often been asked, how, how could plants survive long ages without insects? Uh, insects were created on day five or six. I, I'm not going to even, I don't even care which way you decide. That's been kind of argued back and forth. But as you read down through there in Genesis 1, insects were either day five or day six. And either one means, if these are long ages of time, either one means that it was a millions, billions of years after plants were created, it was millions or billions of years later before insects were created. Well, you know where we're going with that, right? Uh, many plants depend upon insects for pollination. They can't reproduce themselves without insects pollinating the blooms that make the seeds that reproduce the plant. They couldn't exist. But the day-age theory says they did and they did for a long, long, long time before insects finally came on the scene. And then one more argument for Gen from Genesis 1. If the days were actually long ages, what were the seasons and the years? Uh, look at verse 14. In verse 14 of Genesis 1, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. All right, so he sets the, the, the sun, the moon, and stars in, in their position on day four. And they are to be for signs for seasons, days, and years. Well, if a day is a long eon of time, how long is a season? How long is a year? If each day is millions of years long, how long is a year? Doesn't make sense, does it? It's clear that there, by day four, the, the, certainly the heavenly bodies are in their position and they're functioning as they do currently, regulating days, seasons, and years. And so all of that, right from Genesis chapter four, argues that these, these days, these creation days, weren't long eons of time. They were literal, 24-hour days in consecutive order. I think that's really important for us to believe that. We can make that same argument. I think, I, to me, Genesis 1 is, is proof positive enough, but we can make that same argument for literal 24-hour days in the recent past by looking at a few other passages. One of them is the one that Brett er, read earlier from Isaiah 40, verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He's talking about God's creative work. And he says, you've been told, how, how long have you been told about this creative work of God? From the beginning. From the, you've, you've understood these truths from the foundation of the earth. Now, I want to call upon you to think about that timeline we looked at a minute ago. Here's a line a hundred feet long. And right out at the end, one inch of that end of that line is how long man has been here. That's what evolutionists say. But Isaiah said, you've been knowing about God and his creative work from the beginning, since the very foundations of the earth. That doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't fit that long timeline. Or we could go to Mark 10, verse 6. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. 
Well, not if evolution is true, right? Because there was a long, long time when there weren't any males and females around. As we read, these evolutionists think that man is a relative newcomer on the scene. He'd just been around a very short period of time. No. Jesus said from the beginning of the creation, from the very beginning of creation, from that creation week, God made them male and female. And then, of course, I think very powerful is Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice, since the creation, his invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, understood through what was made. Men have been around since the beginning. Since the creation of the world, men have been around to see and understand the incredible power uh, of God. And so there's just, a, there's just a number of arguments from the Scriptures that tell us that the earth was created recently, relatively recently, just a few thousand years ago. The earth was created. That's how long ago creation was. Real quickly, I just want to remind you of some just sort of scientific arguments that can be made to prove that the earth is young and not old. Um, scientists have engaged in population studies. If, if, if men have been here for this period of time and they've been reproducing at, at established rates, how large would the world's population be right now if men have been here for 6,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, if men have been, and of course those kind of studies factor in wars and famines and pestilence and everything else, but these, these who, people who study population growth are able to say over, over so many years we would expect a population of this many people. Well, those studies point to the fact that men have not been here on planet Earth populating for very long just a few thousand years. Population studies point to a young Earth. Depletion of the Earth's magnetic field is another argument that we make uh, for the fact that the Earth is young. The, the magnetic field on planet Earth is diminishing. And, it's, and this is happening pretty fast. The half-life of the Earth's magnetic field is 1,400 years. In other words, Every 1,400 years, the, magnetic, the force of the magnetic field is half of what it was, and it just keeps going down. Now, there have been pole reversals. Scientists argue that, well, the, the, the poles have reversed at certain times, and supposedly in certain strata uh, in the Earth's crust, you can uh, see a reversal in the Earth's magnetic field, and that may have happened. I'm not totally convinced about that, but that may have happened. But the fact of the matter is that the that the strength or power of the magnetic field continues to reduce. 1,400 years from now, it'll be half of what it is now. But if you can calculate how fast it's going down, you can also calculate how strong it used to be, right? You can calculate backwards. How strong would it have been 1,400 years ago? Twice as strong as it is now. How strong would it have been 1,400 years before that? Four times stronger than it is now. How strong would it have been 1,400 years before that? Eight times stronger than it is now, and the thing just takes off uh, exponentially. Uh, you know what the problem is, though? 
only by only about 10,000 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field would have been so strong that the Earth would have disintegrated from its own internal forces. So the depletion of the Earth's magnetic field argues for the fact, scientifically argues to the fact that the Earth can't be older than 10,000 years old. Well, that harmonizes with the Bible, but it doesn't harmonize with the false claims of evolutionary scientists. One of the one, one of these arguments that's always, I think, probably been the strongest argument in my mind for a young Earth uh, on this on this chart up here. We've got the sun out there, and we've got planet Earth over here. Okay, kids, remember your science. How far is it from the sun to the Earth, or the Earth to the sun? 93 million miles, right? Remember that. So here's the sun out there, 93 million miles away. Not that many years ago, about 30, 40 years ago, scientists were able to actually calculate the shrinkage of the sun. The sun is getting smaller. Are you surprised to know that? I don't think you should be too surprised to know that the sun is getting smaller because the sun is just a burning mass out there, right? And it's burning up its mass. And so as it burns itself up, it gets smaller. The rate at which the sun is getting smaller, one-tenth of one percent Per century. So every hundred years, the earth is one-tenth of one percent smaller than oil. Now, you worried about that? I'm not worried about that in my lifetime. Yours, right? It's not, that's not going to be much. But actually, because the sun is so large, that calculates to about the diameter of the sun is being reduced by about five feet every hour. Isn't that amazing? Okay, now here's the thing. Same principle. If you know how fast it's getting smaller, then you can calculate backwards how big it used to be. Now the sun's going to keep getting smaller until at some point when it's almost burned up all of the energy, all, all of the mass that it possessed, then supposedly planetary stars go into what they call red giant phase. And they, and they kind of, they, because, they, because they've lost a lot of their gravitational mass, they, they blow up. We're not talking about that. Uh, we're talking about the fact that a star, as it's burning, is getting smaller, like our sun is getting smaller. We know how fast it's getting smaller. It hasn't, obviously hasn't entered into that red giant phase yet. So we can calculate backwards to how big it used to be. Because we know how big it's getting smaller, we can calculate backwards to figure out how big it used to be. At one percent, one-tenth of one percent per century, did you know that just a hundred thousand years ago? Now we don't think it's been around for a hundred thousand years, but scientists do. Evolutionary scientists, evolutionary scientists—not all scientists, but evolutionary scientists—say a hundred thousand years ago is nothing. I mean, that's you know, that's just like what happened yesterday to an evolutionist. A hundred thousand years ago, the sun would have been twice as big as it is now. You want to talk about a hot spell in August. <laughs> I'm telling you, if the sun was twice as big as it is now, we, again, life would be impossible on planet Earth, right? That's just 100,000 years ago. What does that tell you? That tells you that this solar system and this planet Earth and life on planet Earth could not possibly be older than a few thousand years ago because even a 100,000 years ago, Life on planet Earth would have been impossible. 
20 million years ago, at the known rate at which the sun is shrinking, 20 million years ago. Now, 20 million years, that's a long time, but that's nothing for, a, for an evolutionist, right? 20 million years ago, evolutionists would have said evolution was pretty well finished or what we, what we see now is pretty well accomplished with the final exception being man. Man hadn't fully evolved from the primates yet. But 20 million, what, is it, what do they tell us? These evolutionary scientists tell us that dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago, right? So 20, again, 20 million years ago, that's not that much to an evolutionary scientist. 20 million years ago, the, the sun would have completely enveloped the earth in its orbit. Just 20 million years ago, again, which is fairly recent history to an evolutionist, 20 million years ago, the sun would have been so large that it would have enveloped the earth in its orbit. It's impossible, right? It's just impossible. Now, I've never heard a scientist try to give an explanation for that. Actually, maybe I did here once. A guy, uh, a guy said, well, when the, earth was, uh, when, when the sun was bigger, the earth was farther away. No, that wouldn't work. Right. If the sun was bigger, the gravitational pull of the sun would have been greater. The earth would have been closer, not farther away, right? There's just no explanation for that. There's no explanation. It's just incredible to me that any scientist would expect us to believe that this critical distance, 93 million miles, from the sun to the earth, it's so critical. If we were 10% closer to the sun, we would burn up. If we were 10% farther away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. This critical, they, they say that the earth, the orbit of the earth is in, get this, they call it the Goldilocks zone. Not too cold, not too hot, just right. But that's a very narrow band where in we could have life on planet Earth. And, and the very suggestion that any scientist would even try to suggest to us that that critical distance could have been maintained for millions and billions of years is just crazy. There's no explanation that fits that. There's no way that our Earth and solar system could be as old as they try to imagine or try to make us believe that it is. A couple other things popped up there real quick. One is the conversion of hydrogen to helium. Uh, our sun, you know what, you know what our sun, uh, primarily is? Primarily hydrogen. And you know what's taking place on the sun is a nuclear fusion reaction. And in a nuclear fusion reaction, hydrogen turns into helium. And so you would think if the, if the universe is as old as they claim, you'd think that almost all the, surely almost all the hydrogen has been converted into helium in these fusion reactions that are taking place in the billions of stars that exist in our universe. Not so. Hydrogen is still the principal element in the whole universe. And then I think this one's kind of interesting. Some of us, some of us older ones, can remember when man first landed on the moon. You know one of the things they were worried about when they landed on the moon? They were worried about cosmic dust piled up on the moon. Because the, the, the moon has no atmosphere, right? So everything that comes close to it lands on its surface. What happens to us? Well, when, when particles from space come close to us, they burn up in our atmosphere, right? That's why we have shooting stars, right? That's, that's some bit of space dust or debris. And, it, and as it enters our atmosphere, it burns up and makes a shooting star. And it doesn't happen on the moon.
because the moon has no atmosphere. And so they were really concerned that when they put a landing craft down on the moon, it might sink up into several feet worth of cosmic dust that accumulated it. You know what they found? Almost none at all. Almost no dust on the surface of the moon at all. Which again says the moon apparently hadn't been there that long. The moon hadn't been there. They calculated how deep it might be based upon millions of years of accumulation. But when they got there, there wasn't hardly any dust on the planet, on the moon's surface. And the conclusion would have to be the moon hadn't been there all that long. Well, again, that doesn't agree with their theory. It certainly agrees with what the Bible says. And so, this, here's our takeaways. I uh, apologize for going over a little bit, but here's our takeaways. First of all, science does not know how old the earth is. And honest scientists are willing to admit that they're not able to prove how old the earth is. They don't know. They speculate. They hypothesize. They make theories that aren't provable, but they don't know. And if they're honest, they admit that they don't know. So that's takeaway number one. Secondly, true science, the truth, the, the, the things of science that we know to be true and that are provable and verifiable do not depend upon an ancient earth and universe. True science does not require that the universe be ancient, billions of years old. And finally, I think an important takeaway is there's a good bit of evidence, not just from the Bible, but a good bit of evidence even from science that points to a relatively young earth, not an old one. Don't let your faith be shaken by the unfounded claims of scientists when they try to argue for evolution uh, it just doesn't work. Their theory doesn't work. That's why it's still called a theory, by the way. It had never been proven. can't be proven. It's still a theory. I hope that is helpful as we think about We've talked about some of these very same things before. But, again, our young people are being challenged. Their faith is under attack by the false claims of evolutionary scientists. We want to make sure we get the truth in their mind, well grounded in their minds as they... Uh, will be exposed to these kinds of challenges. And again, we look forward to our community Bible study this summer when we'll spend two nights. Actually, we're going to do a little different this this year. Uh, as I was talking to Joshua Gertler, uh, he agreed that he would come and be here on Sunday to preach for us before our Monday and Tuesday night uh, at the Memorial Building. So that will give us some additional chance to gain knowledge from him. Thanks for your good attention. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you're here and need our help in responding to the Lord, either to obey the gospel initially or to be restored if you've fallen away, if we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.